You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. All right, how's everybody doing? We are really glad that you're here. So for those of you that have been around Calvary for a while, you know this. If you don't, let me just tell you that I wasn't, I wasn't the best student in school. I did really well in college. Uh, it was really first two through 12 that was a little shaky. But uh, some of, not all of the reason, most of it was my fault, but there was a portion of um, the problem was that my parents didn't really understand the concept of homework. My parents are Cuban, which really should kind of clear everything up. Um, but they thought homework was something I was making up. Uh, and they, because th- my stepdad, uh, he ran this cold storage facility uh, in downtown Boston. And so I would go to work uh, at his cold storage facility three or four days a week. And so I remember early on, I would tell them that I couldn't go because uh, I, I had homework. And, and their answer to that was like, oh no, we're not falling for that. <laughs> like, listen, you go to school all day. And if you're not smart enough, to finish your work at school, that's your problem. But now it's time to work. And so I would spend most afternoons uh, and evenings, at least three or four times a week, um, work, you know, operating, uh, by the way, nine, 10, 11 years old, operating a forklift and a pallet jack, um, while, all while my parents told me that students in Cuba were able to finish their work at school, not like these American kids now. And, uh, and I was like, wow, Cuba seems like a paradise. Why'd you leave? Um, and uh, so, which, you know, once I regained consciousness, uh, I knew that that's a question you don't ask. And um, so now I tell you that as kind of a backdrop for what I'm going to tell you now. So when I was in the eighth grade, we had this test, uh, this pop quiz in our science class. My teacher in eighth grade was a woman named Mrs. Shadley, for those of you that just want me to really round out the story. Uh, but Mrs. Shadley gave us a test. I did great on the test. I only missed three questions. The problem is the kid who sat next to me, his name was JP, um, he also only missed three questions. They happened to be the same three questions. We happened to give the same answer to the three questions. And so she calls me up and says, Robert, did you copy off of JP's test? No, ma'am. She says, okay, because you both got three wrong. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And, uh, and she says, but you got the same three answers. I'm like, well, you know, it's bound to happen. And, uh, and she's like, because the weird thing is that uh, on question number 20, he wrote, I don't know, and you wrote, me neither. And uh, so <laughs> that part's a joke. Um, so she made me retake the test. Now, the thing you need to understand about me is that I, I, I have a really good memory. And so by the time I wrote all the answers out, I memorized all the answers. So when she gave me the test again, even though I didn't really know what any of it meant, I just wrote down all the answers again. And um, so she took the three wrong from the first test and the three wrong from the second test and gave me a 70. And I'm like, C minus? I'll take it. I'm going home on the weekend feeling good. So now I tell you all of that um, because we're going to be challenged. There's going to be a test. And um, the the, the Bible is going to give us a test today, and it's going to challenge us to show us that faith is needed at the moments of greatest testing. I I, I don't know if you recognize this or not, but I hope that you do, that faith isn't needed when you're doing nothing. Uh, No one woke up and, and this morning just boldly in faith ate breakfast. You didn't need faith to eat breakfast. Well, I suppose depending on who cooked it, but... Uh, 
most of the time we don't need faith to eat breakfast because faith necessitates action. Because faith is acting like God is telling the truth. It's not simply an emotion. It's not simply talking about faith. At its core, faith is about trust. And the reality is, is that your life will be defined. The trajectory of your life will be defined by what level you believe that God is telling the truth. And so what I want to do in our time together is look at essentially three problems. They, they become these three storms that uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to look at in, in chapter 14 of the Gospel of Matthew. And those of you that don't know, we've been working our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the Gospel of Matthew. I think this is our 23rd message in the Gospel of Matthew. And after today, we'll be halfway there. Cue up the Bon Jovi song, because whoa, whoa, we're halfway there. All right? And so, uh, but we're going to look at these three storms. And Jesus has just gotten done teaching what are called the kingdom parables. We spent a couple of weeks looking at those, uh, what the kingdom of God is like. And now that he's done preaching that message, he gets thrown right back into the action. And he's dealing with people with problems and challenges. There's people in jail. There's people who are hungry. There's people that need help. And if you are walking through a storm today, this message is really going to equip you and help you on not only how to deal with the storms, but how to get through them uh, well. Because most of us, when we deal with storms in life, and every one of us is dealing with something, but most of us, most of the time, we're praying, and it's a good prayer to pray, God, I just want you to remove the storm completely. And sometimes God is gracious enough to do that. And so sometimes he moves the storm, and sometimes he empowers us to be victorious in the storm. And so wherever you find yourself, whether you're uh, coming out of the storm, whether you're in the storm, or whether you realize you're about headed into a storm, I believe that God has a specific word for us that's going to help and serve us and equip us today. So we're going to start in chapter 14 in verse 1. Here's what we read. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John, bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before him and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, being prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then the disciples of Je- uh, then the disciples came, his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and went and told Jesus. And if you pause there and give me your attention as we talk about the storm, three things we're going to look at. The first is this: that the storm gives us a better perspective. Now. We talked a little bit about this situation back when I taught Matthew chapter 11 when John was uh, first imprisoned. But maybe you weren't here, maybe you forgot, but I'm just, and if you do, let me remind you of what's happening here to give you a little bit of background. The Herod that's mentioned here, Herod the Tetrarch, is a guy who's named um, Antipas, and he is the fourth son of Herod the Great. Now, 
Herod the Great is the guy in Matthew chapter 2 that tried to kill all the ba- or he killed all the babies in Bethlehem trying to kill Jesus. Well, he had a bunch of kids. The fourth son that he had was named uh, Antipas, and he was a tetrarch, which means he was a quarter ruler. That is, he, he ruled one quarter of Israel with his two brothers. Now, you'll see the map here. You'll see that Israel is divided. So this is um, all of Israel here. Actually, today, Israel uh, goes down a little further, but um, modern or ancient Israel, this area that's in kind of this reddish color uh, was ruled. This is half the kingdom that was ruled by Herod Archelaus. Now, Archelaus ruled the area mostly to the south, which started in Samaria and all of Judea, which included Jerusalem and uh, this area near, near the Dead Sea. The northern part of Israel was split. And so he ruled, uh, you had uh, Herod Philip, who ruled th- this area right here, kind of the northeast area. Um, he ruled one quarter. And then Herod Antipas ruled this area of Galilee and this little area here closer uh, to the Dead Sea. Now, uh, this is also uh, the Jordan River's down by here as well. Most of the miracles that Jesus performed were in the area of this part of the Galilee. So a lot of Jesus's ministry and miracles and activity took place in the region in which Antipas was doing ministry. So it's not surprising for us that Antipas hears that Jesus is performing these miracles and that large crowds are forming to hear him amongst the common people. Now, the problem that was happening is that Herod Philip, this dude, had a wife whose name was Herodias. Now, Herodias was the daughter of a guy named um, Aristobulus IV. Herod the Great, guy who killed the babies in Bethlehem, that was, Aristobulus was his oldest son. He was going to rule all of Israel when Herod the Great died. Unfortunately, Herod the Great suspected him of treason and in his mid-30s had him executed uh, as a traitor. So that now leaves, um, so he has a daughter named Herodias who then marries Philip. And you're like, hold on, if that's the sin, isn't that, isn't that, isn't Philip Herodias's uncle? And your answer would be yes, that's right. So she marries her uncle uh, who was, you know, her dad's, her dad's brother. And so now, but then she decides to leave Philip and she decides to marry Antipas, who was also her uncle. And you're thinking, does she know anyone else besides people in her family? Apparently not. Or like, hey, maybe venture out, you know? But no, she's, so, so this is all like very complicated and it's all, uh, but uh, the problem too is that Antipas is already married. He's married to the daughter of the king of the Nabataeans. See this area, Nabatea, right here? So, uh, which is now modern-day Jordan. But he's, uh, the king of the Nabataeans, whose name was Aretas, um, gave his daughter to Antipas. Now, once again, what happened back then is that people were married and given in marriage. Their sons and daughters were given in marriage by these rulers to make peace and to create treaties. And that was very common in the ancient world. And so... Uh, not so much in the Jewish world, but certainly in the, in the, um, in, in the secular world. So, but what happens is, is that Antipas divorces the daughter of uh, King Aretas. Aretas sees that as such an insult, he goes nuts. And, uh, oh, by the way, um, the Nabataeans, their capital was Petra. And uh, you see this picture. This is Petra right here. You'll see it. There it is. So if you ever saw um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, um, when they find the grail, it's, by the way, it's like, spoiler alert.
I know, the movie came out in 1989. You've had 30 years to watch it, all right? Um, I actually, I got to bring this one day, but I have a picture of my wife and I standing right here in this doorway. And right in the doorway, um, we were looking and, and there's this little indentation. Like you see these lines and the, uh, these little divots and then you see this indentation. And uh, I asked the tour guide, like, hey, what is this for? He goes, oh, because this is where they do all, did all the human sacrifices. And, uh, and so anyway, my wife and I took a, we thought it'd be a romantic place to take a picture. And uh, so we have a picture right there, like right, right where the sacrifices were. Anyway, so um, Aretas is so upset that Antipas has divorced his daughter. He sends all of his military up to the area of Galilee to destroy Herod. He wipes out Herod's army, and he's just about to wipe out Antipas when uh, Tiberius Caesar hears about this, and he sends a Roman legion to then beat back uh, the Nabataeans uh, to keep Herod uh, from being killed. But once again, this guy divorcing his wife and marrying his niece, by the way, it, this, is, uh, it, this is causing an international crisis. Now, John the Baptist speaks out about this, and so he arrests John to garner favor with his wife slash niece, Herodias. Now, if you're keeping score at home, you've got two brothers that are both married then to the same niece, and only, the only person getting punished is the man of God who's saying, hey, you probably shouldn't do that. Now, this is one of my least favorite Bible stories. I, I absolutely love John the Baptist. Outside of Jesus, my favorite Bible character is John the Baptist. And, uh, I, I, and it's just, I get, you know, at first read, you get frustrated because you're thinking, this is a guy who's doing all the right things, and it seems like evil is winning the day. But here's what I want us to do. I want us to pull back a little bit. Let's zoom out the camera a little bit because evil isn't winning anything. In fact, just the opposite, but we've got to kind of pull back a little bit because I know this, when this happens, John is dead and now Antipas and Herodias are finally saying, finally, my problems are over. This guy's dead. He's not going to harass us about our marital situation. And so, at, but here's the thing, after the whole ordeal with the Nabataeans and the king and all that and, and um, uh, Tiberius having to send uh, in, uh, uh, the military to save Antipas, uh, Antipas was kind of on the outs with the throne. So Tiberius had, was kind of fed up with him, but for him, a stroke of good luck, Tiberius Caesar dies. And he's like, oh, good, now I don't have to worry about it. The problem is his successor, whose name was Caligula, didn't like Antipas either. But because there was a new Caesar in town, Antipas now goes to Rome because what he wants to do is use his, through some political maneuvering and use his wealth to try to purchase the title that his father, Herod the Great, had. He, ha he had the title King of the Jews, and so he's trying to purchase that title from Caligula. Well, Caligula, when he gets there, uh, Antipas... He, Caligula is so fed up with Antipas and all the problems that he's causing that Caligula then takes everything that belongs to Antipas. He takes his wealth, he takes his position, and he takes his title and gives it to a guy named Agrippa. Now, you read uh, the book of Acts later, you'll read about Agrippa. But then he takes everything, he gives it to Agrippa, and he takes Antipas and Herodias and banishes them into this horrible place called Gaul, and then, um, and so now you have, oh, and I forgot to tell you this. Agrippa is Antipas's nephew because, because Agrippa is Herodias's brother. This is a telenovela. 
And so, what a mess. And so now this, and Antipas now gets cast out, it gets banished, and he and Herodias live a, just a few short years, and then in, in misery, and then they are gone as well. And listen, he's just a footnote in history. And John dies at their hand, and John's legacy is that you cannot tell the story of Jesus without telling the story of John. See, here's what John knew that Herodias and Antipas did not, is that this life is not all that there is. The Apostle Paul would say it this way in Romans chapter 11. He says, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to wake up out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. You see, as believers, as followers of Jesus, we have this understanding that this life is not all that there is. That there is an eternity that we know is coming. Why? Because we know that because Jesus rose from the dead. And the promises that he made are now fulfilled in the fact that he rose from the dead. And listen, but if you think that this life is all that there is, then you are going to try to get everything you can here and now. Because here and now is all that there is. And I, so for years, my family and I, we had annual passes uh, to Disney World. And a few years ago, we canceled because then they were like, hey, we want this much money and uh, we want these body parts as well for you to continue. And I'm like, well, I only have one liver. You can't have it. And, uh, and so it just got, it, it was not, uh, it just wasn't worth it. It was, it, and so we just said, you know what? We can't do it. And so but I don't know, but when we were, when we had annual passes, we would meet up with friends that were there, whatever. So uh, one year I'm speaking at a conference, this church conference in Orlando, and we decided to make it a little bit of a family vacation. And I had a friend who was attending the conference and he said, oh, my family and I, we got one day passes for Magic Kingdom. I, I heard you're going to Magic Kingdom tomorrow. And I said, I am. He goes, hey, let's meet up for lunch. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. So uh, we meet up with my friend whose name is Travis and uh, we meet up for them at lunch. And so we end up at this place in Tomorrowland called Cosmic Rays. I don't know if you know Cosmic Rays. My wife can't stand Cosmic Rays. And, um, but somehow, and I don't really like it either, uh, but we always end up at Cosmic Rays, and I don't know why that is. It is the worst laid out restaurant in the history of food because there's one, meat, one line if you want meat. There's another line if you want chicken and a third line, I think, if you want venison or something else. And so, and then, you know, you got five people in your family, which I suppose is fine if you're by yourself. You got five people in your family. It's like, all right, well, we'll be in this line. And we'll, it, what a disaster. So anyway, so we're sitting there and m- my friend Travis and, and his family, they are uh, strategizing the entire lunch about how they're going to ride everything before 11 p.m. And so because I like to get involved in conversations that don't concern me, uh, I start asking, and I'm like, what time did you guys get here? He's like, what time did we get here? What time you're supposed to get here? 7 a.m., right, when the rope drops. And we, I'm like, what? And I'm, I'm like, and so what time are you leaving? And they're like, well, we're going to ride everything that this park has to offer by 11 p.m., then we're going to watch the parade, and then we're going home. And I'm like, I, I'm tired just listening to you talk about that. <laughs> and, uh, and they're like, well, what, 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 are you, what, time, what time did you guys get here? And I'm like, I don't know, 1045? And, uh, and, and, and like, well, what was your, what do you plan? How are you going to ride everything? I'm like, I'm not riding everything. I got three fast passes. And this is back, back before, this is back when they had fast passes, back before it was miserable. Um, and so I'm like, I'm riding three fast passes and maybe one other thing. I'm having lunch and I'm definitely having a snack. 
and then I'm out of here. And, uh, and then whatever I miss, I'll catch next time. And whatever I don't catch next time wasn't God's will for me. And, uh, but I am not staying here longer than is. And, and listen, here's the thing, because it's not the end. Because I feel like I've got an eternity to attend, to, to, to want to ride whatever I want for this kingdom. But listen, if you view your life like a one-day pass, you will run over everything and use anyone to get what you think you deserve, what you think you need, what you think you want. Herod lived his life like this. And in the end, his life was an absolute waste. John lived like there was another kingdom that was coming, and that's why his legacy is still speaking to us 2,000 years later. Listen, if salvation has invaded your future, you won't spend your life trying to get everything because you think that this is all that there is. You'll, you know what salvation does is that it frees you and it brings you a peace and a joy and a contentment into your life that allows you to really live. And so no matter how challenging the storm is, you know that there's hope because there's an eternity that we're waiting for beyond this life. And, and now you might say, but, but pastor, my, my, I'm in a storm and my storm is in the here and now. And, and how do I deal with the need that's in my life right now? Well, the good news is that Jesus is going to tell us that. Uh, look at what happens in verse 13. He says, when Jesus heard it, that is the death of John the Baptist, he departed from there to a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the other cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them to me. And then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave it to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. If you pause there and give me your attention. Second thing that I want to tell you about the storm is that the storm is not just a better, gives you a better perspective, but the storm reveals God's provision. I want you to understand what's happening here. And even before we get into the story, there's a couple of preliminary things that are important for us to learn. And that is that Jesus is teaching and healing and the hour is getting dark and they're in an area that's deserted. And this isn't by accident. This is because Jesus wants to do something. And, and you need to know this, and this is another thing that I think is important, is that there are some miracles that Jesus does that are recorded in one gospel. There are some that are recorded in, in two, and there's many that are recorded in three. This is the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospels because it was, that, it was this special and grand of a miracle. One of the things that uh, when, when you read this story is that you're going to learn that it's a test. 
when you read uh, John's gospel, you'll find that it's a test for the people that, are, that were fed by the miracle because he's going to give them a hard teaching that he wants them to understand. And it starts thinning out the crowd of the people that really were his followers and the people that were just there for a free sandwich. And so, and, and that's one thing, and you'll see that in John's gospel. But in here, we see that there's an immediate test that's for the disciples, the 12, the, these guys that were following Jesus, and it is a test of trust. So he places them in an impossible situation and then asks them to trust him. And, and why does he do that? Because it's easy to talk about trusting Jesus when we don't have to actually trust him. But when things get tough, that's when our trust is revealed. Now, another thing that's important to note, and then we're going to start dealing with the text, is that um, at the end of verse 21, it says that those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So this is 5,000 only including the men. So scholars believe that this is probably the, not the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the fifteen to 20,000. Because you have now uh, all the women who are there, families who are there, parents who are there with multiple kids. So there is easily 15 to 20,000 people there. And then the question becomes, why do this miracle at all? It, what the disciples are saying is not unreasonable. Jesus, we got a break so you can send everybody away uh, to get lunch. You know what we're going to do after a little bit? We're going to send you guys all away to go get lunch, right? And, and that's okay. And my hope is wherever restaurant you end up, that you tip well. Because there is the, Christians have a bad testimony in restaurants to be very demanding and very poor tippers. We got we to gotta flip that script and become very gracious and very generous tippers um, because we, we serve a God who's very generous. So let's, let's reflect that. Let's at least start here, okay? We're going to do that. That be like all those other churches. But man, the Calvary people, they're awesome, all right? So I'm going to go to a few restaurants this week and check up on you. And that's just going to be my, my personal uh, ministry work, all right? So, no. So here's what happens. So once again, not unreasonable for that, him to send them away. Um, but Jesus cares about the men, women, and children who are there and wants to meet their needs. But there's another reason. He wants to elevate the faith of his disciples. Now, the cool thing about this story being in all four gospels is that you can read each account. Uh, and you can find these little details that one gospel writer mentions that the other didn't see as that important to mention. And so in the gospel of John, we have a few details that we, we, that we don't see in the other gospels. So check this out in John chapter 6. It says this, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that everyone may have a little. And one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, said, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Now, there's a principle that Jesus wants to teach his disciples that's important for us to internalize as well. We can make it a little equation if we want, and that is this, that my obedience plus God's blessing equals abundance. Now, the part of this teaching that blows my mind is that if this little boy had just kept his lunch to himself, that little lunch would not even have filled him up. Because we think five loaves and we're thinking, oh, these are like five big loaves of Cuban bread. I mean, just one slice of Cuban bread will fill you up. No, it's not what, these were, 
Uh, by the way, we, so we can't think of it like that. I mean, but five fish, imagine, you know, 25, you know, some 20 pound bass. No, that's not what it is. The five loaves we read in the gospel of John were barley loaves, which means that they were basically the size of dinner rolls. And by the way, barley is what the poorest people in Israel ate because barley is what you fed animals. And so uh, they were more like just these little rolls and the fish that this little kid had or what are called upsarion in Greek, and they were basically the size of sardines. This kid did not have much to offer, and that's why Philip in the Gospel of John says, even if we had 200 denarii, which a denarii in the Roman culture was essentially a day's wage. So 200 days wage, so seven months worth of money or, or wages wasn't enough for people to even have a little, not be filled, just to have a little. But so... If that's the case, what in the world is Jesus trying to do here? He's trying to elevate their faith, and he wants them to see that five little rolls and two sardines is better than seven months' worth of wages when Jesus is involved. Now, here's how our mind tends to work. The way that we tend to work is, well, if God wants me to be generous, then what he should do is give me more than five loaves and two fish, and then I'll be generous. But that's not the way that it works. You see, you take a step of faith and honor God with your resources, and then he multiplies it. The, the test is, do you believe that God can provide for you? And listen, some Christians, they never pass this test, and they keep stumbling over this teaching over and over again, and then they wonder why God doesn't ever bless their financial world, and it's because you never let God in. And he just, God in his grace just doesn't let us move the, past this test before we uh, we, we get it and then, and then we move on because there's always a connection between our giving and our faith. And lots of times we say that we have faith, but when we throw in our sardines, that's when it gets real. When I was in college and I was getting my, my undergrad in theology, I, I, I got to the end and someone was supposed to help me with the tuition and they kind of sold me out. Um, so I ended up owing part of my last two semesters. And so I had finished all my coursework and I had just gotten married, and I had no, no budget, but I got called in, and they're like, look, we know you finished everything. The dean calls me in. He says, I know you finished everything. You have this balance. We can't let you graduate until you deal with the balance. And so, and I'm like, okay. And, and they're like, well, so what can you afford? And I'm like, I don't know, maybe like 50 bucks. I mean, I spent, when we just got married, I spent $35 a month on groceries. So, I mean, we were living on next to nothing. And well, once again, this is like 200 years ago before the invention of the light bulb. And, um, but anyway, so, but I wasn't going to graduate until I had, I had paid off this, until I had paid off this debt. Now, so I remember I made like the first $50 payment. I'm like, all right, well, at this rate, I'm going to finish in about six years. And um, then I get called and it's like, hey, the dean wants to see you. Uh, so when you come to church, stop by his office. So I get there and uh, some of you have been around Calvary for a while. I've told this story before. And um, he shows me a piece of paper and it's my balance. My balance got zeroed out because somebody had paid off my debt. And God just said, I, I don't know how they knew, but God put it in somebody's heart and caused him or her uh, to do this uh, for me. And I remember being 23 years old. I, I, was, I, was, I was so moved when this happened because I had no idea and I had no means by which to pay this. And, and I remember thinking, um, someday I want to do this for someone else. You know, I think that there's this thing that happens with Christians that we always talk about wanting to be blessed. And I want to tell you that there is, there is a place in your life when you decide, you, you get, God just does a work in you and you get blessed. And then you decide this, I don't want to just be blessed. I want to be the blesser. 
I want to be the blessing in somebody else's life. I, I want to live my life in such a way so that when there's an opportunity that arises and God is leading me to do it, that I can act and now be the hands and feet of Jesus in somebody else's life. And I think that that's, that's the way of maturity. Well, a few months ago, someone I knew who's um, in college seeking a theology degree um, stopped taking classes because of a similar situation that happened with me. And uh, they didn't have the money. They didn't want to go into debt over college, which I totally applaud. And um, so I reached out to the school. And I'm like, hey, um, without breaking any laws, uh, can you tell me how much this person owes? And, uh, and so they told me. And, and, and I went home to my wife. And I just said, honey, I, I feel like God is telling me that, that we should help. Um, because I know this. I wouldn't be here today if someone hadn't helped me. And so my wife, and my wife is the most generous person that I know, and, uh, and she just said, yeah, absolutely, let's do it. And, um, and so we just, we paid the bill. And, um, and I have never been so happy. Paying, I don't know if you've ever gotten happy paying your FPL bill. <laughs> I've never been happy paying my FPL bill. I, I do it begrudgingly, and it just brings out all my feelings about the government and all that. And so, but man, I'm telling you, you pay for somebody else's FPL bill, and it will bring a joy in you. And, uh, you know, I've never, I've never had joy paying for my own school, but man, doing it for somebody else brought so much joy in me. And then something happened that I did not expect. And that is that God started blessing my family and my wife and I. I'm telling you, I paid that bill and that everything that I paid within a week came back to us and then some uh, in ways that I could have never predicted. And that God just started doing some things that we didn't expect. And, and this is why, listen, when we talk about giving, and we don't talk about it all the time, but it is, it is stewardship, right? It's part of discipleship. It's part of how we grow. And listen, when we talk about giving at Calvary, it's never about the money. It's always about the trust. It's always about giving Jesus our five rolls and two sardines, knowing that he could do more with it than we ever could on our own. And that's why I love what happens at the end. That's why you know it's a test. Look what, look what happens at the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 6 at the end of the story. It says, therefore, when they had gathered them up and... I can't... We start, where are we starting? Okay. Okay. Where are we starting? Is that where we're starting? Okay, don't change it. All right, here we go. And when they had gathered him up, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Now change, there we go. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the barley loaves which were left by those who had eaten. Now, um, by the way, I never, I, when my wife and I got married, I, I said, I don't eat leftovers. And she's like, why? I said, it's not biblical. And, uh, and, and, and I said, if you find me a verse that says that it's biblical to eat leftovers, and she pulled up that verse, that they picked up all the fragments that were left over. And I'm like, well, heat it up. Let's do it. I'm obeying the Bible. And so anyway, I got Bible thumped by my own wife. And so, but now let me, let me explain. It says when they were all filled, let me explain what that means. Because sometimes we think it means that they had a little nibble. Like when my, uh, when my daughter Livy, uh, who's almost 11, when she was two or three, she would have these daily tea parties. And I was invited to these exclusive events regularly. And, um, but she would pour out her invisible tea. 
and she would, and I would just chug it. And then she would give me the plastic cracker that came with the tea set. And I was like, oh, yeah, so good. And then, then, then as she got a little bit older, so now three, four, five, she still wanted to have the tea party, but she wanted to start, she didn't want air tea and plastic treats. She wanted to start working with live ammo. And so we would give her water and a couple of saltine crackers. And somehow Livy would get the water all over herself. And then the crackers would start to disintegrate and it would start sticking to her. She looked like a human croqueta by the time the thing was done, right? And so, and we have the tendency to think that, oh, everyone, oh, everyone had a little bit. And they were like, oh, I'm so full. Listen, that word that they were filled that that we reference in John chapter 6, that word literally means stuffed or glutted. You ever eat so, you ever get eat so much and get so full that you're like, I can't even have one more bite. I know, me neither. Um, but, <laughs> but this was like Thanksgiving, right? You know, you have a couple platefuls of food and then you, you discreetly unbuckle your pants um, so that no one sees just to kind of make room. And then they're like, well, do you want cake or pie? Like, well, I don't want to be rude. So just give me a huge heaping portion of both. And, um, But this crowd was so full, they were glutted. I mean, they could not eat one more. And then the disciples had to pick everything up. And there was 12 baskets full. Now, why why, why were the leftovers 12 baskets? Because there were 12 disciples, and Jesus wanted each one of them to carry a basket around to see God's resources and ability if we will trust him with five rolls and two sardines. By the way, if you're in a financial storm, you know how you get out of the financial storm? Five rolls and two sardines, and you start trusting him and see him do the things that only he can do. And you say, but, but I, okay, but I got a different kind of storm. Well, the good news is there's a different kind of storm that we see next. Look at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter had come down, uh, uh, come down of the, uh, out of the boat, he walked on water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was bolsterous, he was afraid. And, he began to, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they had gotten into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now if you pause there and give me your attention, last thing I want to tell you, and then we're going to go our way. And that is that the storm shows God's power. There's something that I don't want us to miss, is that it says, it gives us this little detail that it was the fourth watch of the night. Jesus is setting this whole scene up. He's going to call, he's gonna, he sends the disciples away and says, all right, get in the boat. I'll meet you on the other side. And it says that he sends the multitude away. Hey, guys, I love you. Go back home and we'll see each other soon. And then he waits a little while until the fourth watch of the night. 
Now, the way it works is Jews had kind of divided up the evening, and it was kind of like we talk about people who work either first shift, second shift, or third shift, and that's how we figure out when somebody works. The way it worked in um, the Jewish culture is the first watch of the night was from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. The second watch of the night was from 9 p.m. to midnight. Third watch was midnight to 3. And fourth watch was 3 a.m. until 6 a.m. Now, he sends them away. The storm comes. They have been struggling with this storm for hours. And sometimes we look on at a pain that we're in or difficulty that we're in or storm that we're in, and we think, what did I do wrong to deserve this? Listen, the disciples hadn't done anything wrong. Jesus wanted to reveal himself to them on the very thing that they were most afraid of. They feared the storm, so he shows up walking on top of the storm. And then Peter says, hey, Lord, if it's you, like, first of all, they're like, is it a ghost? Um, Like, you know, who knew? People knew about Casper back then. Um, And so, but it's like, Lord, if it's you, like, who else is it going to be? But it's like, Lord, if it's you, command me to, to go to you. And then And he does, and he walks on the water for a little bit. And listen, we give Peter such a hard time, and pastors do this. Like You listen to pastors teach on this. They're like, he took his eyes off of Jesus. He got afraid. He kept his eye. He he was looking at the waves, and that's when he started to sink. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. But he's still the only person outside of Jesus to have ever walked on water. And if any of us had ever done that, we would work that into every conversation that we ever have for the rest of our lives. Like we meet somebody, hey, it's nice to meet you. Oh, it's nice to meet you. Man, I'm so thirsty. Would you, would you like some water? I would love some water. <laughs> Not like the water I walked on, but it's still pretty good, right? And we would, just, we would do that. And like, hey, we should talk some more. Hey, here's my email address. Uh, it's, it, it's bigstepsatwaterwalker.com. You can pick up a book that I wrote called Aquafaith. You know, then we'd start a youth ministry called Liquid. And, uh, and I'm telling you, these are, we would do this. We would do that. I appreciate you guys getting that joke. And, uh, but this, I'm telling you, we, we would not, never let it go. And, but here's what, here's what people in the storm know. They understand the secret of the storm. You see that the storm doesn't signify Jesus' absence. It shows us how close he actually is. And that he is wanting for you to see him in the middle of the storm. Because eventually the storm passes. But what you learned in the storm is what you take with you for the rest of your life when you go to the next level that God wants to take you to. That's why the disciples, they don't don't fear the storm after this episode. There's times before this where they fear the storm and Jesus calms the storm because he's asleep in the boat. This is the last time that we read about them fearing the storm because they realized who the Lord of the storm is, that the waves and the sea obey him. And this is why sometimes, listen, we face the same tests over and over because God is waiting for us to pass the test so we can move on. And you know what some of us think we want? We, We think we want this. What we think we want is a life of smooth sailing. But what we really want is a life of purpose. And, and, and the two aren't the same thing. Antipas had a life of smooth sailing and his life amounted to nothing. And you and I have the privilege of walking with Jesus and he hasn't left us in the same way he didn't leave them. And he is letting the storm grow our faith the same way he let the storm grow their faith. So listen, If you find yourself in a marriage storm, you know what we need to do? You gotta fix your eyes on Jesus. You gotta, and and 
and he'll get you through the storm and you hang on to him and you hang on to each other and you don't give up because he's with you. And if you're struggling with your kids and you're in a a family storm, a parental storm, then you fix your eyes on Jesus and do what he's telling you to do. Be courageous and watch him work in your family. Listen, some of us might be struggling with mental health or emotional health. Here's what you need to remind yourself of, that storms don't last forever. How you're feeling right now doesn't last forever. There's this beautiful verse in Psalm 30 that says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And and I know it's hard to see, but if I can just talk to you as maybe your spiritual big brother who's endured a few few storms in his life, can can I just share something with you? And it's so hard to see this when you're in the storm, but you you see it when you leave the storm. And you see this, that on the other side of the storm, you will learn that God hasn't been doing this to you. You'll realize that he's been doing this for you. Because the storm in a strange way becomes a gift. And it's not, you'd never wish it on anyone and you'd never want to go through it again. But here's, here's what you do know, is that the storm produced something in you It produced a trust in you. It produced a faith in you. It produced a dependence on Jesus um, in you. And it grounded your faith more than you thought it ever could. It made you like Jesus more than you thought that it ever could. And it gave you a trust and faith in him that you take to the next season of your life. My friends, in this regard, this is why Christianity has such a leg up on any other belief system or philosophy. Because if you're a secular person here, then the reality is, is that your suffering has no meaning. Um, if, if you come from some other religious tradition, then, um, then God is separate from su- your suffering and he can't relate to it. But in Jesus, the Christian faith teaches us this, that Jesus, we can fix our eyes on him because he suffered with his creation and he suffered for his creation and he understands suffering like no one else. Because Jesus in his suffering was seeking us. And now the key to us handling suffering and the storms that we find ourselves in is by seeking him. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you. Thank you for the wonderful promise that you are there when we find ourselves in the storms. You are not absent. You're not separate. Instead, you're with us. You're never going to leave or forsake us. And we're grateful for that. So we pray, Lord, for every person in this room that is going through a storm, whatever sort it might be. God, make yourself ever so real and abundant in their life that they would know that you are with them. And God, when we get through the storm, help us to be grateful and have a joy unspeakable because of all that you've done. And we pray it in Jesus' name and everybody say, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.